brought to you by CGTN Europe. Legions of Star Wars fans flocking to see their heroes on the red carpet in Cannes. They've gathered from across the world for the premiere of Solo, a Star Wars story. Philip, where exactly are we now? What do we have here? Well, we're in the foyer, the entrance to the new studio, and we've designed it so that we've got big folding, sliding, very thick double-glazed doors on our main conference room. But, little known to them all, this quiet building in the back streets of South London is where the latest in the Star Wars franchise was brought to life. Typically on an average working day, uh, all the animators or artists turn up at a normal time and they would be assigned shots to do by their producers and coordinators. So. This is Jellyfish Pictures. It's a BAFTA award-winning animation and visual effects company. From its base here in Brixton, it creates some of the most stunning images used in the film industry. It has a string of high-profile productions to its name, including three of the latest Star Wars movies. So it's physically a busy office? Lots of yes, lots of people coming and going, lots of chat, people, you know, having lunch together, going out together, playing table football or going for a drink after work. Yeah, a very sort of normal and buzzy young office environment. With business expanding, last year Jellyfish made a substantial investment in its new headquarters here. As well as state-of-the-art working facilities, the office has meeting rooms, viewing galleries, an in-house cinema and a chill-out zone for staff to unwind between busy deadlines. Then, early this year, for boss Phil Dobry, everything changed. We flew over to Los Angeles in early mid-January. Been following the news since December in, in China, so as, as much as everyone else, we knew that there was a potential SARS type of pandemic going on and, and a long-haul flight to LA at that point. And, you know, there was always a number of, particularly Asian people, wear masks. And so it was pretty obvious it was gathering pace. Then in February, as workplaces across London began to empty and ahead of any government announcement, Jellyfish Pictures took a radical step, sending almost all of its 300 staff home and effectively closing down its new office completely, at least for the duration of COVID. We decided to start getting people home quickly. We saw the financial centre of London, the city, were doing and uh, it was obvious that we needed to start to, to plan for getting people home as soon as possible. So we, we did that two or three weeks before the official lockdown and by the time lockdown happened in the UK we'd already had nearly 80% of our staff at home and our technology allowed that to happen relatively smoothly. I think initially it was a, almost like a blitz sort of shock thing that we just have to get working and it's you go into survival mode and you want to make sure that productivity is not affected. The Covid outbreak has left companies across the world like Jellyfish grappling with the same problems. How to switch from operating from a busy office filled with staff to a reality where almost all of its employees are working remotely from home. It's a change that has left the commercial real estate market across Europe 
in free fall. Before the crisis, we saw an urgent need for office spaces. It was really hard to find office spaces in Berlin or Frankfurt, but also Dusseldorf area. And what we see now is that planned investment projects in, in the lease of new premises are either postponed or on hold for the moment. Nicholas Vilanch is an associate at the law firm Baker McKenzie, negotiating leases for corporate clients in the top end of Germany's commercial property market. In the last months, the most, most urgent prevailing question was, do we have to pay the rent? Are there any opportunities to reduce the rent? Is there maybe a rent-free period that helps us here? Or how are our chances, for example, to, to apply frustration of the contract? The impact of COVID has been such that many of his clients are now seeking to renegotiate or cancel their leases entirely. Some are even attempting to invoke the so-called force majeure, the act of God clause, that would free them from their liabilities under the terms of existing agreements, effectively leaving them with no physical office space at all. For example, Austria, you can see in the Austrian Civil Code that there is a, a clause that handles a force majeure, uh, in particular in the context of a pandemic event like Corona at the moment. In most other jurisdictions, force majeure clauses are rather unusual. You should be prepared for shorter lease terms with a fixed term and more options to extend or options to early exit the lease agreement that there will be force majeure or frustration of the contract clauses in the lease agreements that consider events like COVID. But for offices that do stay in use, it's becoming clear that COVID has changed how working spaces will have to operate, possibly for good. We've come a long, long way over the last 40 years with a simple aim of making things better. And now, our quest takes us into banking. When the British bank Virgin Money took out a long-term lease on its new headquarters last year, the big draw of the building, which was still under construction, was its 8,000-foot rooftop terrace, complete with its own running track. Then the pandemic struck, forcing a rethink by developers. We're very fortunate where we are with the construction process. We're about 50% of the way through, um, but we've still got just enough time to make these amendments. But they're not having to rip out stuff and put new stuff back in. Stephen Lewis is Managing Director of the HFD Property Group, the firm behind the $250 million development. When it's finished next year, the office building in the centre of Glasgow will be the largest in the city. So what changes have been made? COVID, like most uh, SARS and MARS and others, are transmitted either through the air or through touch. So whilst the building is a long way there in terms of its automation, we've made some tweaks to that to remove some additional touch points in the building because that's one of the main transmission uh, areas. We already had a visitor management system, which again, pre-accredits visitors to the building. So you, you don't have to physically sign in when you arrive. That accreditation goes to your mobile phone. You can now come from outside the building, uh, through the front doors, through our, our security barriers, into the lifts, uh, and onto your, your occupier's floor without physically touching any part of the building. But we've extended that further, so in the smallest room in the house, as they say, in the toilet space, you can flush, wash your hands, dry them, soap dispensing, all that, again, is fully touchless. But with an entirely touch-free office still out of the question, newer innovations have also been required. 
if you take an example of the cubicle door in a toilet, you have to physically touch that. Uh, but there are copper alloys that you can now get, which are 7% copper. They use these in hospitals, uh, and that alloy effectively is successful at killing off viruses like um, COVID within about 60 seconds. So whilst you can touch it, and if you have a transmission between 30 and 60 seconds, the, the copper alloy kills that off. The cost of these measures has added hundreds of thousands of dollars to the build, which the developer HFD has decided to pay for itself. But the post-COVID world is also seeing a demand for smaller tech innovations that can be easily and cheaply adapted into existing working environments. We are active in the area of office uh, workplace measurement, so the occupancy measurement. And we did that already before the COVID crisis. We measure the location to see what, if there are free spaces available for the employees. And with that information, you can do things like energy management, facility management. Aaron van der Staat is the chief executive of Smart Eagle in Amsterdam. It makes optical sensors which track the movements of office workers. Until the COVID outbreak, these sensors aimed to maximize office space by keeping staff working together in close proximity, avoiding the problem of empty desks. Now, in the era of social distancing, the model has been turned on its head. So that is the sort of the new solution so that you can uh, measure the interpersonal distance without any gadgets, any wearables or any smartphones. You can see what the distance is and if it's below a certain level, then you can generate a warning where you can uh, say that it's okay. You don't want to go to your work if you think it's, it's not so nice to go there because people are too packed or too, too dense. And for the employers, it's, it's much more important to provide a safe working area. So if offices are to stay, then touch-free doors, interactive ceiling trackers and smart passes on your cell phone are something that we may all have to get used to. But the cost and maintenance of these new high-tech spaces raises questions about just who will own and manage them. I'm sure that there are lots of people here who know what WeWork is. Tell us a little bit about how the idea has evolved. From the first day that we started WeWork, it was about bringing people together. As our mission, and our mission always grows... Adam Newman, the now ex-boss of the office rental giant WeWork. When the firm launched in New York a decade ago, it promised to revolutionise the commercial subletting market by targeting startups and gig economy workers with plush office spaces that offered pinball machines and meditation zones, along with a desk and chair. WeWork crashed late last year after failing to make a profit. Now, in the post-COVID world, some are asking if the office subletting model has a viable future at all. Here's Eddie Mitzostedio, Director of European Research at the property agent Savills. It has been driven a lot by, you know, what is happening in, in big cities like London, uh, like Paris. These have had very strong take-up by these uh, operators, but also in smaller but growing dynamic cities like Barcelona, like Warsaw. Going forward, though, beyond this critical year that we're going through, but we believe that the role of flexible offices will rise again. So you have different requirements from different types of users. You have big corporates that may have, you know, like large scale requirements, but you also have freelancers. So I think I think there's going to be a variety of players. Others, however, believe that the COVID outbreak has raised fundamental questions about exactly how we live and work. 
Katie Kasablis is an architect, urban designer, and a visiting fellow at the Cities Programme at the London School of Economics. There are two things that we need to consider. The first is, how do we get people to work? And the second is, what happens when they get there? So in order to have less people commuting, going to work, I think, will become less of a habit and more of a strategic task. And in that way, you will give the option to different teams in the office to come in when they need to do something that they need to do together. And the end of the office as we know it could raise big questions about the very future of the city itself. A lot of our land use regulation is very hardly into creating either residential or commercial or business districts. And I think that that way of city making does not serve us anymore. The nature of work is changing, right? How, where, when, and with who we work uh, is all up for grabs. So what I would like to see moving forward is more a notion of a productive neighborhood rather than a traditional business district. The COVID outbreak is challenging many of our beliefs about the workplace and just how paid employment is conducted. With so many firms now facing huge losses on real estate investments and remote working becoming the norm rather than the exception, it may be easy to see the traditional office as going the way of the shopping mall and Main Street, a relic of how we once lived. But it's clear that if we are to retain the office as a social as well as a working space, its future looks smaller, leaner and smarter. So how do you feel now, sort of seeing this place empty? Do you feel sad about it or...? I'm used to it now, but I do, you know, to be honest, it is, it is very sad. It's not what it was built for. It was built to have lots of people walking around, interacting, discussing work. Do you regret Initially, it? Yeah, well, I don't, no, I don't regret it because I think it still will always be the centre and the heart of Jellyfish. Any company worth its salt needs a headquarters and needs somewhere. It's just not practical to all be at, be at home and not have a centre because things are going to get better, they are going to improve and there are going to be people coming back into the office to work. So from that point of view, there is no regret for this space, but it's, it ha I, I won't lie, it hasn't been easy emotionally. No, the office is not that, not at all. Because but maybe you could, don't call it an office, but it's meeting area of interaction is, is definitely will remain. It's not like, you know, 10 chairs in the, in the corner, in, in, but that, that trend was already underway, I think. There's no dramatic change, I think. There will, will absolutely, in our view, be a flight to quality. And by quality, we mean developments that take these issues and deal with them. So if, if developers and landowners weren't considering smart tech, they will absolutely have to do that now. A, because it's the right thing to do, but B, because it's the only way that they can adequately deal with the issues that things like COVID throws up. But it's a good thing. That was The Office of the Future, the third in this CGTN's podcast series, Notes on a Pandemic. I'm Louise Greenwood. Next time, when work stops working, we'll be looking at how the pandemic has changed all our working lives and just how paid employment is done. Music